I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge from WNIJ. If this is your first time here in the show, it's a simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives who helped shape who we are, and we want to hear about the educators who've inspired you and the educators in your community who deserve a spotlight. Every educator we have on this podcast, whether a teacher, a coach, professor, is nominated by the folks who listen. So please be a part of the show and tell us about the person who comes to your mind. Email us with your nominations and your story ideas at teacherslounge at niu.edu. This week on the show, we have Kathy Berberay. Kathy's a retired elementary school teacher from Freeport, Illinois, and she started her teaching career in 1965. And to say they threw her right into the deep end, oof. When I started teaching, as a teacher, you were extremely isolated. You were closed in this room. I had my second year of teaching 50 third graders. 50? We absolutely talk about how in the world you teach that many kids at once, how she evolved as a teacher as she got older and adapted to new teaching styles and technology, and we hear some of her favorite stories from over the years and so much more. Before we jump into that conversation with Kathy, a few more stories. Obviously, it's been a really deeply painful week in America, especially for teachers and for students. 19 children, most of whom were around 10 years old, and two of their teachers were murdered at school in Uvalde, Texas. Sabrina Peden has been a school counselor at the Dalton School District for over 20 years. I have an eight-year-old daughter who was walking past the uh, TV one day and she saw the news and she was like, oh my God, mom, if I was at that school, I would be dead. So as a mom, I was crushed. As a social worker for students from kindergarten to eighth grade, she spent a lot of time checking in with students in the morning and throughout the day, having younger kids touch a feeling chart and being honest with students and fellow teachers feeling overwhelmed. Their feelings are genuine. Their feelings are real, you know, and it's okay to feel the hurt and the pain and the fear. There's there's so many mixed emotions that can come rushing in, you know, when a tragedy happens like this. She says her younger students have thankfully been distracted by end-of-the-year activities and games, but she says her middle school students absolutely understand the tragedy. She would also recommend parents monitor what their kids are watching this week, especially on social media. Peden says to make sure students have trusted adults they can talk to and who will take them seriously when they say they've seen or heard something strange. And she says if an adult notices there's something a little off or different with their student, don't sweep it under the rug. Now, you've also seen gun violence protests across the country, oftentimes from students themselves. Northern Illinois residents, led by students, held an end gun violence rally in Naperville. Claire Comerford and her little sister are middle school students in Romeoville. And on their first day of summer vacation, they joined a crowd protesting the school shooting in Texas. Their sign said, quote, no more silence, end gun violence. Claire's sister Annabelle said her science message is pretty simple. Um, it only happens in the United States and not anywhere else. And um, normally you go to school to learn and not to die or, like, get killed or be scared. She said going to school was scary last week, and only her classmates were talking about the shooting, not her teachers. Her older sister rolled her eyes thinking about Alice lockdown drills they had to do. They told her to throw books at the shooter. Claire says she's got a pretty good throwing arm, but 
doesn't think it would do much good against an AR-15. Elected officials like U.S. Congressman Bill Foster were also at the protest. Foster called on the Senate to pass the universal background check for gun purchases bill that the House put through two years ago. He also called small states' disproportionate influence on the Senate a, quote, founding blunder of our founding fathers. At the time of the founding fathers, the ratio of the population from the biggest state to the littlest state was only 6 to 1. And now it's 22 to 1. And that is very far from democracy, and we've been suffering for it. Residents also vented their frustrations to the 11th District Democrats, saying things like, quote, We've been voting for candidates who support increased gun regulations for over a decade, and nothing has changed. And Foster shared a story from his father, a civil rights attorney, and said protests in places like Selma did eventually turn the tide of Congress and lead to legislative change. He also agreed that there is a correlation between the sheer number of guns in America and gun deaths, including homicides and suicides. All right, now it's time for our conversation with retired teacher, the wonderful Kathy Berberet. Throughout your career in education, did you feel like there was a pretty consistent respect for the profession? Is that something that you felt like changed at all? I, I definitely felt that teachers were very respected when I started my career, which would be way back around 1965, 1966. Teachers were respected for the learning that, that they made a part of themselves, the um, education that they took in order to get to the place to be a teacher. They were respected by children and parents alike. Always there were some that, of course, did not, but it was, by and large, a very respectful profession to be in, and you, were, you felt appreciated. Did that stick for as long as you were there, or did you feel it start to shift a little bit by the time that you retired? I think it stuck for a very long time. I started my career in actually private schools, Catholic schools in Chicago area for three years. Uh, my father was of a mind that I got most of my education in Catholic college and university, and I should give back. So I did, and when I, when my husband and I moved to Freeport, that was when there were no Catholic openings, so I went to the public schools. That's fascinating. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought it back to the beginning there because I, I was thinking about this interview and that we've had plenty of, of teachers on that are retired, but you've been retired for about 20 years, over 20 years now? Um, since 01. So it'd be, I'm in my 21st year and isn't that amazing? I don't yeah, know where it went. <laughs> your retirement is uh, legal to drink now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, but you know what? Having a glass of wine now and then is a good idea. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I, so we've had retired teachers, but I don't think that we've had on, you know, someone that, that's been out as, as long as you've been out. And so I think it's, it's fascinating to catch up on, on, on how things have changed and how things were at where you left them in the classroom. But since you mentioned that you taught in, in Freeport, the majority of your teaching career you spent in Freeport then? Uh, yes, I started there, I believe, in about 1968. I was blessed to start out in my first public school was Empire School. And then a couple of years later, I had a daughter. So I left, but when I came back to teaching, I was able to get back into the same school. Second grade? And that's where my, and um, I was, I started in fourth in that school. Actually, I've had all the first four grades. 
but I was basically um, a primary school in my education. So I went back after having Sheila, and I started in second grade, and I was there the rest of my career. My favorite, favorite grade of all of the first four grades, including kindergarten. I did my student teaching in kindergarten. Why do you think it's just because you spent so much time in second grade that that's your favorite, or do you feel like it's kind of a sweet spot in teaching? That is an excellent way to put it. It is a sweet spot, in my opinion. I always felt second grade was a year of refinement. In the kindergarten and first grade, children are excited to be in school, but so much is coming at them that um, you don't see it start to settle until about second grade. And, of course, second grade is the year when the most important skills come into play, which would be reading. Mm, I never thought of it like that, yeah. They came in very nervous and little first graders, you know, just barely starting their education. And by the end of second grade, they leave you very accomplished in many different ways. Some more accomplished in certain areas than others. Yeah. Now, again, I'm glad that you, you started back at the beginning because I felt like maybe the best way to start the conversation was just to go back to you. And you know, one of the questions I always ask people in these conversations is, you know, is teaching something that you always wanted to do since you were a kid, or was it something that came later on in your life? Like what brought you to education in the first place? Well, education was very important and valued in my family. So I believe that when I was young and people would say, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? You could either say you were going to be a nurse, a secretary, or a teacher, or you were going to become um, a housewife and mother. Right, yeah, those <laughs> so were the prominent professions. Those were the women. prominent professions that were available to women in that era, or at least in my view. So my parents were very instrumental in uh, stressing education for my family, and so I ended up definitely wanting to be a teacher from an early age, probably playing school. I was the teacher. I was going to say, I talked to so many teachers, especially especially the primary teachers, right? The elementary school teachers mm-hmm. that, that, that were playing school and, and, and teaching, you know, stuffed animals and stuff like that at an early age. Right, right. <laughs> <Line> <laughs> I don't up with remember the class. stuffed animals, but then you, did, you didn't really get a full picture of teaching because they didn't talk back. That's true. That's true. It's more of a lecture. Yes. (laughs) Now, I'm curious, too, like, this show is, you know, built on the concept that everyone has had teachers that really, like, inspired them or really helped them along their journey in education. And so we have people, you know, be nominated. And, and, you know, you were nominated for us to talk to on the show. And I often find... And I thank Bob for that, by the way. Thank you, Bob. But I wanted to raise it to you where when you think of teachers that you had at any point in your education experience, were there any of them that really had a big impact on you and maybe helped lead you to where you ended up going in your profession? Oh, definitely. Um, I I related always to my second grade teacher, um, who at the time was a nun, but a so diversified individual. She actually enjoyed teaching, and I think that's a key function 
there are teachers who don't really enjoy children, in my opinion. But she was one that loved where she was. She also went on and taught fifth grade and eighth grade. So her ability to be versatile was probably something that I noticed without actually realizing it. Yeah. I also felt that the dedication of all the teachers that I had, in particular my eighth grade teacher, they were just dedicated to learning and how it's not just for the moment, but it's for all the rest of your life. It saddens me a bit now that there's so many kids that they don't want to put in the work to recognize that what they're wasting are the moments that would make such a difference for the rest of their life. Yeah, you know, it's hard to have that kind of perspective in the moment, I guess. Right. And then I think probably uh, my high school years, the art teacher was very instrumental just because she, I was always on a path for college. Yeah. But she gave sort of an outlet for other types of talent, even though I'm not talented as an artist. I learned enough that I could teach art because in the elementary school, you didn't have an art teacher every, you had them once a week. So you were doing art every day. So I'm grateful to her. She made a big difference. My uh, college years where I was in the field of education were at Mundelein College Mm -hmm. in downtown Chicago. And I chose Mundelein because they were considered basically a teacher's college. Yes, a normal school, if you will. (laughs) Yes, yes. And the head of the department in the primary education area was a teacher, a little nun. She was just so much fun. And you knew that the things she was teaching you to do would help you walk in that first day because she was very realistic. But fun. But fun. As I say, most people probably don't associate uh, nun with fun. None was fun. And in addition, you know, they taught how important uh, a form of discipline was. And in her, in her explanation, I often told other teachers who came through later that this was one of the things that she always stressed. Never smile until Christmas. What? Never until Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> Never Why? smile until Christmas. Her point was, if you come in and you want to be the fun teacher and you want to joke around with the kids, you will lose all respect and discipline for the rest of the year. Even in elementary school, because I, I, I could see that for high school, mm-hmm. right? Like or, or middle school, especially where you want to come in stern. I'm the boss. I'm here to teach you. But even in elementary right. school, you got to be you got to be regular with them. Definitely in elementary school, because you want them to be a listeners. You want them to be engaged. In other words, they have to listen and pay attention in order to engage in education. And her point was that if you are too much the friend, then you lose that. um, I suppose it's the the word that comes to mind is the authority. Yeah. And we know now what it's like in today's world because authority is really sort of um, not appreciated. It's devalued a little bit, yeah. It's devalued. So that was her point. And and I do I remember one year in my teaching career. So I mean I was considered somewhat strict. Um And you were you were aware of it though. You were aware that you were that's how you were considered. Well, and definitely that's how I was raised. Interesting. No. Yeah. 
but you bring you bring a lot of your uh, own values from your childhood to teaching, of course. So I I think that I was um, strict, but I hope that I was fair, and I hope that I was able to um, show that there was love behind the reasons that you know I and put up with a lot. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a teacher, you can be strict. As long as people feel like you're fair and they learn something. But if, if, if you're strict yes. and they felt like they didn't learn something, that's when people right. shoot out. <laughs> and and if they the other side of that is they have to know that you care. Exactly, yeah. You have to show that side all the time. And I think the ways that you show that they care is to recognize their strengths, to encourage them, to encourage them to follow the the loves that they have, whether it be in art, whether it be in, in science or whatever area, that encouragement is really important. So don't smile until Christmas, but by spring break, we're laughing up a storm in there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> and we're all anxious to be done too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know. I was just talking to a teacher the other day and he was saying that just before spring break, and just after Christmas break is kind of like that was the, they were saying it was like the sweet spot because it was like everyone is experienced. They know what the expectations are for the class and how to get that's things right. done. But yeah. after spring break, that's when everyone takes their eye off the ball and they're just ready to get out of here. So until we get to that, that's like the perfect spot for optimal it learning. <laughs> it is. And, you know, the whole um, the whole expectation thing is extremely important, in my opinion. If you don't show that you have expectations for each child, then they don't know what to measure up to. They don't even know what to try. So I think your expectation has to be, all right, you may not be able to read right now, but we are going to get there one way or another. If you need extra help, it's going to be me. If we need to you know, uh, spend extra time uh, at home and provide educational uh, materials for you to take home. That's what we're going to do because our expectation is you're going to be able to read better by the end of the year. And to me, reading was my number one responsibility. Yeah. And I, I mean, I spent a lot of my teaching years in those days we did. Well, let me just back up. When I started teaching as a teacher, you were extremely isolated you were closed in this room with, I had my second year of teaching, 50 third graders. 50? 50. Were you in and an auditorium? Well, that's a huge classroom. It was a huge classroom. And it was a Catholic school, and I had 50 third graders. What is it like to step into that classroom, close the door behind you, and then as someone in their early 20s, look out at 50 second graders? You quickly fall back on every single skill that you've ever had personally and professionally. And you divide kids into groups because you can't handle 50 at one time. You you basically are totally isolated. It's you and you're making decisions one after the other after 20 others in a short space of time. And so that isolation was something that I experienced big time in the beginning. But I felt like a sense of relief later on when something evolved that we called team teaching. And so that was a huge change in my career where I had other people I could go to, other yeah. people that we would 
work, work with different groups of children, even groups in other people's classrooms. So I learned a lot, not only from those kids, but also from their teachers. They became sort of mentors of a sort. You saw different teaching styles, whereas in the early years, you knew what you were taught and that became your style. I have to imagine that to some degree, going through that at the beginning of your career where you've got 50 kids and you're on an island with them, right. it must feel like trial by fire, right? Like if I can handle this, I can handle pretty much anything in this profession. <laughs> pretty pretty interesting analogy. <laughs> well, and, this, and the year after that, I went to only 43 kids in a different school. And what a that treat. Was like, that was like, <laughs> Oh my goodness. So then, so you were at the, that Catholic school. in my Catholic school years, yes. By the time that you got to the public school in Freeport, which again, I think you said was right. the late 60s at that point. Yes. Were the class sizes a little bit smaller? Oh yes, definitely. Um, but we varied in the early years. I mean, we had as high as, mainly I would say 25 would be more the norm. But we went as high as 29 in some years. You know, some years there was, well, actually there was a teacher shortage again when I started in the public schools. And the teacher that I started with as kind of a co-worker was called out of retirement. That's how short they were on teachers. And she was, at the time, 60. And, I mean, she became one of my very best friends. You just... You just learn so much from each other. If you had the opportunity to work with someone who had such a vast amount of knowledge. But then she also became part of the team, and I saw her flexibility and resilience even at 60. Wow. So it was very interesting times, to be honest. Yeah. Do you remember anything specific that you learned from her at that period? Her ability to be, have been retired for five years. Because I think of myself now, would I want to go back? Oh, no, I would be such a dinosaur. It wouldn't even be funny. <laughs> but for her, that, that You're handling the off, Zoom, though. You're handling the Zoom, so maybe um, don't underestimate yourself. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Peter. You're an easy one to handle it with. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I would say that her ability to um, come out of retirement for five years and then just dig right in was one of the characteristics I most admired about her. And she became such a close friend that when we had children, they all called her Grandma Frances. So she was just that kind of a person. She appeared very stern and strict in her appearance, but that wasn't true. Right. After after Christmas, she was she could smile. <laughs> oh. <laughs> now remember, that was what this nun taught yes. us at yes. primary school. Yeah, it's funny, I, going back to your time at primary school really quick, when you were trained to become a teacher, and even before then, like, I would imagine that most of the people at that school were training to be teachers were women, probably? Well, Mundelein was a woman's college. It was, so okay. So in my so, yes, case, it was. they were all women. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And then when you were in high school, were there a good amount of women that went on to some form of college, whether to be uh, a nurse or a teacher, you know, did most of the people go to college or what did it look like for you? I think that I was on the uh, beginning end of most young people being encouraged to go to college. Really? Yeah. And 
I mean, college was really an expense for a family. I was the oldest of four with three brothers right behind me. And that was a huge expense. Yeah. But I do think that we were at the very beginning of, if you want to have a career, you go to college. Right. And in women too. And women too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, I was going to say, you're, so you're oldest of four? I am. See, I'm youngest of four with, with three older brothers. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> but all within five years, though. So it's a, it's, okay. it's an interesting dynamic. <laughs> well, and we were all within five and a half years. Oh, no kidding. Us. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. Where, where did you, did you grow up around Chicago? I grew up in Oak Park, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. Oh, that's my my brother is uh lives there now. My brother is uh, actually a pastor in Oak Park. My brother's a Lutheran really? pastor there. He, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was a great place to grow up. And when you asked about how many people went on to college, um, the Catholic school that I went to was called St. Giles in Oak Park, and it served half Oak Park and half Chicago. But I think it was a neighborhood and an area where there were a lot of professional people. Yeah. And so I think college was always on people's radar. Very and, academic. Um, Hometown of yes. Ernest Hemingway. Come on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And I met my husband in the eighth grade, by the way. Really? In the eighth oh, actually, grade? Actually, I met him. I met him actually in the fourth grade, but we were in the same school all through high school or grade school. Not high school because I went to the girls' high school. He went to Fenwick, the boys. And then we didn't really start dating until we were college age. Oh my goodness. That's wild. I know. So, how many years have you guys been together then? Married, 55. 55. Congratulations. That's amazing. Yeah, and he's pretty techy, isn't he? He got got me through this. (laughs) He's savvy. He is savvy. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) Thank God for Jim. It's it's, yeah, it's funny you mentioned about how like you'd feel like if you, you'd be a dinosaur if you had to got called back into teach right now like yes. on a, like scale of one to ten how confident would you be just to like come one day you get to pinch hit and you know substitute teach one day of second grade how confident would you feel? Oh, I I definitely think I would be confident enough to do it. Yeah. Um, I don't know that how easy it would be to deal with the children today who they just seem to be so much more I mean I have grandchildren so I'm not totally out of out of touch but they all seem to be so much more physically active and the thing that would probably prepare me the most if I stepped back in were my final years of teaching when I went and got my master's in reading at NIU. It's interesting you say that though because I always like to ask people that are retired that were in education for a long time, if you feel like, generally speaking, from the time you started to the time that you finished, do the kids change a lot? Or on some level, are kids kids, no matter what decade you're teaching them? Did you feel like the kids that you taught and, you know, how they behaved and carried themselves, did that change a lot or not really? I'm sure there were huge changes. Um if you get down to each child individually, then you just have to look for what are their strengths and what are their weaknesses. And I felt very fortunate because we had a, um, a period of time in our school district where we were able to 
uh, create like um, units of learning. Yeah. And we were able to take those units and we could say that, all right, we're going to do something that involves literature and music, but we're going to do the art in the same way. We're going to do the music the same way. We're going to do the readings, everything, math, everything centered around a certain theme. So my most favorite, favorite 21 years at Empire in second grade, we started something called the Nutcracker. And we did a musical production every December of The Nutcracker. And I have to say some of my most favorite memories of seeing the strengths of kids evolve occurred during those times. So it was a children's operetta. It took about 30 minutes. And it involved all of our music teachers, our art teachers, and my team of three or four teachers, many of whom I'm still really close friends to yeah. or with. They were all younger, of course. You you actually had seven or eight kids who took speaking parts, and the rest, every other kid in the second grade was an, uh, a baker who did a dance and sang songs. They all learned the songs. They learned the music. I have still had adults come up to me and say, I remember I was a candy cane in the Nutcracker. <laughs> or I was a baker. How could you forget being a candy cane? Yeah, of course. And the, the boys and girls, the boy that played the Nutcracker and the girl that played Marie, one of those young men, they were just such a natural. They learned their they learned all their lines like almost overnight. So one of them became and is making movies today, currently. He lives in our town. And he has a family, and he was one of my favorite nutcrackers. He, he was just, you could see when he stepped on the stage at age seven years old that this was a strength, and then you try to encourage those strengths. Right. So, again, it sounds like for you, like, even if the kids might change a little bit over the years and the technology changes that mm-hmm. your work of, of trying to find what their strengths are and encouraging them, that kind of stay steady. Oh, I definitely. I think yeah. if you're a teacher, there's that side of you that you want to bring out the best. Yeah. I was it's interested in like the things that you felt like were big changes over the course of your career. What's and obviously technology is probably going to be a, a huge one of, of things that shifted that over huge. your time. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, so just I'm curious about some things that in your mind stick out as big things that changed that you had adjusted to and then Are there some things about education that just stay the same? So for big changes, I think class sizes became a big change. They dropped those down toward the end of my career where maybe one year you had um, 15 to 18 kids. Uh, That would be one change. Probably for the best, right? That seems more comfortable than 50. (laughs) Well, yes. And as far as being able to give more individual help, definitely. Yeah. Um, another big change for a very short time, they brought in uh, like uh, paras to come into the classroom and help. So I had that for probably under five years because then there would be money one year and then the money wouldn't be there. So then the um, assistance would go away. Yeah. Technology. Oh, my gosh. I just remember the first computers. I think they were called Commodores. Oh, yeah, they were. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Okay. And, you know, we had like all 
new things. They give you maybe a half day or a one day instruction in it. And then close the classroom door and you're on your own. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's a, that's a half a day to prepare you for the dawn of computers. That's horrifying. Well, I'm just saying that's my memory. Maybe it was a full day. I don't know, but it was not anything that ever. I mean, basically, you had to decide how much time you were willing to put in on your own in order to become more um, capable of using it and then introducing it to students. And, of course, then when they went to full-on computers, someone like me who's not one that's just going to dig in and make every mistake possible, because I don't like to make mistakes, I just would would have to um, get, get enough help that I felt confident with it. So mm-hmm. I'm sort of a black and white person. Did you figure that out? <laughs> right or wrong, whatever. Did you feel like, um, I, it's interesting you say that because that makes you think like throughout your entire experience of those decades, do you feel like as a teacher, did you change a lot? And I mean, I have to imagine you, you, you became a parent and, you know, raised kids and stuff. And I have to imagine that impacts the way that you teach kids too, but do you feel like you and the way that you taught changed a lot? Oh, absolutely. I'd say a 180 for sure, because as I said, I was very structured. The way I was taught was the way I walked in probably teaching kids. I don't think it was a bad thing, but I think it was much more narrow. Right. So um, the more things I learned, the more things I could bring to the classroom, um, And, of course, when you become a parent, you have a lot more empathy for all that kids go through because you're going through it at home. I do remember just feeling a lot more empathy toward families. I did work a lot of my years with um, what I would call the lower readers because we did divide kids in that era where, you know, you'd have your gifted readers, you'd have your um, medium students and then you'd have those who were struggling and I always ended up with the struggling readers and I loved it because I felt like and that is the reason I got my master's in reading by the way yeah I felt like um, I needed more skills to work with them and I needed a way to engage them in the love of reading I guess I would say the best thing that I ever felt was to read lots, read to them all the time, read different things. Because once you found a book that a kid loved, there were always other books in that same genre that you could pull out. And that was how you really gave them the boost that they needed, I felt. Working with that particular group of readers gave me a lot of empathy for what kids go through. But I will say that when I would come home at night I wasn't really eager to sit down and do homework with my kids <laughs> that's where I would say Jim <laughs> yeah please yeah no. well it's fascinating because like the things that you're talking about about having empathy for kids and you know maybe identifying that there is a reason behind you know right. why a student isn't doing as well or is struggling right. like these days that's the idea of social emotional learning is like one of the, the biggest concepts that people talk about in education. And I think it's, you know, articulating that same idea that like, and I think it's maybe easier right. when you have kids of your own to yes. look at a situation and say, this student is struggling and, 
maybe it's not just that he is not good at reading, or maybe it's not just as simple as he's acting out, but there are underlying reasons why these are happening and you can have a little more empathy. And it's one of those things that I think that once you see it, you really can't unsee it for any other kid. Well, that is true. And, and I think it caused you to dig deeper. Okay. So maybe it's not that he can't see, so he doesn't need glasses. Maybe it's, you know, you start going through a list of potential reasons and, and that's how you get closer to a kid um, yeah. and to the reasons that they're having trouble. And sometimes it was just engaging families to change their lifestyle at home to include the things that their son or daughter needed. Sometimes it was as simple as teaching them how to go through the backpack when the kid came home to see what he had to do. (laughs) You you were teaching them in a way to be parents. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have to imagine, especially when you're teaching really young kids, a lot of it is, yeah, like if you really, you know, to improve as a reader, especially that reading at home is a huge part. Right. Huge. Well, I wonder how much that's going on right now. I know. There's so many distractions to actually getting children to sit still long enough to engage in reading. I don't know. Yeah. Well, like you said, there's more distractions than ever, but there's also probably more tools than ever to try to make it fun in a new way. So Uh, I I don't know. Maybe. That's true. (laughs) Well, Kathy, I don't have terribly too many more questions for you, but one of the questions I always like to ask near the end of any conversation I have with someone is just, you know, and this is more open-ended, just is there something about teaching that you think is just more important than people who aren't in it might realize? Is there just, is there something about teaching that you wish more people talked about when they talked about the profession. Everybody wants to leave this earth, earth having made a difference in some way or other, correct? Yeah. I think it's a profession that you have an opportunity to make a huge difference. You may never see it. You may never know in particular what difference you made to this child or that. Every once in a while, something would surface where you would have a child just come before you and you would actually feel that you made the difference by what they said, but it doesn't usually happen that way. You just know deep down you've done everything you can to try and make a difference. Okay. I've got just a couple more rapid fire questions for you. One of them I was thinking about, we we talked about how things changed and stuff, but I was curious Mm -hmm. when you, when you started out, it was the mid sixties. Actually, yeah. 1965 was my first teaching. Is there anything that you guys did in the classroom in, you know, elementary or whatever grade that you were teaching in 1965 that you think people today would be like, what is happening? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, my gosh. I have no idea. Um, (laughs) Probably it was much more of students sitting in their desk all day. Didn't talk you know, we, we weren't we weren't moving them around as much, so I I would say probably that would be the hardest thing to have happen today. Kids yeah. need to move, so do teachers. Yeah, absolutely. And then, really, one of the last things I wanted to ask you is, you know, we we talked about the the Nutcracker and how big that was. I just wanted to give you. I know that you know my mom's a teacher, my stepmother's a oh. teacher. I've got a lot of people in education in my life, and the one thing. 
one of the great things about having educators in your life is that every single day they come home with some kind of story of something either funny or profound <laughs> or ridiculous yes, that yes. happened in that day. When you think back, are there just any other stories aside from the Nutcracker, which we already talked about, any other stories that you just really like to tell people about your time in education? Again, whether it be profound, whether it be goofy or funny or just anything that really just sticks out in your mind of something that happened. Well, there's one that still boggles my mind. The kid who somehow was trying to staple the seat of his pants and it went through his bottom instead how he would even envision stapling the, the clothing on the seat of his pants he's I like i need know. to close this pocket down there's <laughs> <laughs> whatever i, I it, it still boggles my mind what what thought was behind that or what thought wasn't behind it um there's just some things that'll remain a mystery i guess right <laughs> there's some things that have to remain a mystery you know on a on a positive side there were just so many great kids that went through. Um, hopefully in, in their handling of their own children and their children's education, they picked up some, some things of some use over the years in, in, in their classrooms, you know? I believe so. That they can, yeah, I think so too. All right, Kathy, well, Peter. again, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Teacher's Lounge. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on the show. It's how we get all of our great guests. Send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. And wherever you're hearing this podcast, please do subscribe, leave a rating, share it. It really does help us get even more perspectives. Also, please subscribe to the Teacher's Lounge newsletter to keep up to date with everything having to do with the show. You can find a link to do that on this episode's webpage on WNIJ.org. Big thank you to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ofs for the amazing music you hear every single episode. And big thank you to Spencer Tritt for making our Teacher's Lounge logo. I've been your host, Peter Mudlin, and we'll be back with more Teacher's Lounge very soon. See ya.